Father in heaven, we thank you for the holy word of God. We thank you uh, that it is for our reading, understanding, embracing. Father, that it helps shape our knowledge of you and shape our hearts uh, in understanding uh, the graciousness and the goodness that you pour forth in its pages, Father. I pray uh, for just illuminated understanding by your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord, that we have this in abundance and help us not to neglect it, Father, but provoke us to further study and further prayer. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Let's see here. Uh, chapter 12 of, of uh, Deuteronomy, verse 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which, shall caref- which you shall carefully observe in the land which Yahweh, your Elohim, the Elohim of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all of the places where the nations whom you shall possess, serve their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and burn their ashram with fire. And you shall cut down the engraved images of their gods and obliterate their name from that place. When we start the idea of the specific stipulations in chapter 12, it begins with a definite call to intolerance of other religions and belief systems. You say, well, is God an intolerant God? He is. He is. And why is that? Because only He tells us the truth and everybody else is bought into a lie. That is important for us to understand. Uh, God is uncompromising about the truthfulness of, of everything he tells us. So it's important for us to to grasp that idea. Does that mean that he's a jerk about it? Well, no, not necessarily. A lot of times it's him simply stating the fact and pleading. In fact, this is the whole ministry of the prophets. If you read them, they go to people to rebuke them because they're operating apart from God's truth. Rebuke, just because it has that hard K sound to it, doesn't always mean that it has to be done harshly. It can be simply done as as taking someone to the Word and pointing out the wrong and giving them an opportunity to respond to the Word of God. And and hopefully, prayerfully, their heart is softened to that and they will do that. But just because it has that hard case sound doesn't mean that we come in guns blazing on people all the time. Now, when people know His Word, despise His Word, and have set themselves on a course to do opposite of His Word, that's when God gets angry. And that's because God has given many gracious chances beforehand to be heard and giving people an opportunity to do the right thing and yet they do not do it. That That's an important point there. So we'll have to get you another chair here. Unless you want to sit on this blue chair. I don't think I hear. Okay, just want to make sure. Just want to make sure. All right. So notice verse 4. You shall not act like this toward Yahweh your Elohim. It all has to do with the idea of conduct. Now notice, go in and tear all this stuff down This is not the way you address him. And this chapter is all about how you approach the creator. Or how Israel is to approach the creator. And here's the first marker that you have in verse 4. You do not come to him as the other nations come to their God. That is unacceptable. (coughs) He is not just some common God that you choose to worship. He is the God and he will determine how he is worshipped. Look at verse 5. 
But you shall seek the Lord at the, everybody mark it, place which the Lord your God, Yahweh your Elohim, will choose from all the tribes to establish his name there for his dwelling, and there you shall come. Now, I want, I want, to, want you to note something important here. This is what is known as the theology of sacred spaces, okay? And I think it's important that we grasp this concept, spend a little bit of time on it, because if you notice the words that we've seen so far, and I, I talked to you about marking this, Verse 2, the word place, or places. Verse 3, the word place. Verse 5, but you shall seek the Lord at the place. This idea of place here constantly is vitally important. In fact, if you're taking notes, let me go ahead and give you the verse references in this chapter where place comes up so that later on you can go back through and you can mark it. As we go, you can mark it, or if you're real quick, you can mark it now to see it. It's located not just in those verses, also verse 5 as we just saw, verses 11, verse 13, verse 14, verse 18, verse 21, and verse 26. All of those verses, let me give them to you again. 2, 3, 5, 11, 13, 14, 18, 21, and 26. The Hebrew word for this is makom. It is M long A dash Q O M. And there's, there's nothing unique about this word except the fact that Moses keeps repetitiously using it. Again, what would make this word significant? Context always determines the meaning, the context of the passage. And so notice, it's not that you can just walk out in your backyard, take a sacrifice out back, and you're going to sacrifice it to God, and that's sufficient for him. No. He tells us where to go to worship. Why is that important? Here's an interesting parallel that we see. How many of you have ever met someone who's a believer in Christ, who talks about their relationship with the Lord, but is convinced they don't need to join with a body of believers or attend church in order to be, I don't even know what the word is to, 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 to bring on that, but the idea is, is that they can attain some sort of spirituality apart from the gathering of the local body. I've heard someone say they can worship God on the golf course. Yes, I can worship God on the golf course. Now here's the thing, when they're out there teeing off, is that what they're doing? They're not or not i had somebody tell me one time hey here's here's a, this is hilarious i was actually doing premarital counseling with a couple and they talked about how they love nature this was here they love nature they love spending time in the woods they love hunting they love fishing they love all that great stuff okay fantastic and they go and you know and we we, we also like our church mm-hmm. i said where do you guys go to church they looked at me and they said grace bible church I've seen them here once in the entire time I've been here. (laughs) However, this is their church. You have to imagine the expression of bewilderment that came over my face. Because I couldn't understand. But what they're essentially saying is, is I don't have to gather with a group of believers in order for it to be acceptable. Is God pleased by the believer in Christ forsaking the assembly of the body? 
Not at all. In fact, let's look at this in real time real quick. I wasn't even planning on doing this, but everybody go to Hebrews 10. Well, I just turned there. That, okay, obviously God wants this going on. <laughs> Chapter 10. Of Hebrews, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, and yes, it starts for therefore. Why is that? Let's, let's worry about it here in just a minute. I want you to grasp this whole idea. Therefore, brethren, and he gives you the reason why. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Now, let me show you something interesting about the book of Hebrews for a second. If you're someone who likes to mark in your Bible, everybody see what he just said. Let's read it again. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Does everybody see that? Take your finger, put it here, and turn back to Hebrews 4. I'm going to show you this real quick. This is really important in how you discern the entire book not just focused on a passage or a paragraph or even a chapter but the entire book of Hebrews Hebrews 4 look at verse 14 4.14 through 16 therefore since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus the son of God let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Now watch this. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Does everybody see similar language in 14 through 16 as what we're seeing in chapter 10, verse 19? Does everybody see that? Go back to 10, 19. Therefore, brethren... Since we have a confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Does everybody see the idea of approaching Jesus with confidence? That you can come to the holy place, the presence of God by the blood of Jesus with confidence. You have no need for fear, shame, shrink back. I'm inadequate in some way. No, the blood of Jesus paves your way there. You can totally come. In fact, aren't we told uh, to come to the throne of grace boldly, seeking grace and finding mercy in a time of need? That's what... Uh... Yeah, exactly. It's the, it's the same type of idea. Uh, but it's the same type of idea that's going on here. Which tells you that in chapter 10, verse 19, he's picking up the same idea that he was going for there. Now, from chapter 5 to chapter 10, 18, that's a heck of a parenthetical statement. You think I preach long. Good grief. That's a parenthesis out of this world, but it's important for us to know because he's setting up the idea of being able to come with confidence and nothing hinders us from coming with confidence to the presence of God because all the work of Jesus is taking care of paying our ticket and paving our way to be there. Does that make sense? So this is a huge, illustrious, grand like, yeah, I can embrace that. That's a done deal for me. Praise God for that. Okay, so verse 20. By a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. Remember when he died, the veil was torn in two. He dies and he destroys the separating peace between us and the Father. Remember the thick veil in the, uh, in the uh, temple there between uh, the most holy place and the holy of holies, the idea there. There was a huge thick veil that only the priest one time a year could go back through and stand before the Shekinah glory of God. Okay, he had to come appropriately into the presence or he would die. Well, that veil, 
Done. Gone. How was the veil destroyed? It wasn't by somebody getting there with a chainsaw or scissors or something. It was by Jesus dying on the cross and opening the way. So notice he's referring back to this whole thing. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Everybody see the similar language to 4, 14 through 16. The great high priest that we have, Jesus. Look what it says. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Notice that's a fellowship issue. And our bodies washed with pure water. That's a fellowship issue. Jesus has already cleansed us. Live in light of the cleansing that he's freely offered. Everybody see this? You can come boldly to, to, to Christ. Or, or to God through Christ. Verse 23. Now let us hold fast, fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? Because we're awesome people? No. For he who promised is what? There it is. Notice it's all based on the faithfulness of Christ and his word. Because he said that's the way that this is. That's the way that it is. And that's the done deal. Don't let your thinking be led astray otherwise. Verse 24. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Anybody got a different translation there? Besides the word stimulate one another. Almost it sounds like we're cattle prodding one another, kind of. Provoke. Provoke one another. That's pretty good. But that even has like a, a negative connotation, does it not? Spur. What, who's? Spur. Spur. What translation do you have? I don't know. It's okay. It's okay. The correct answer is Jesus' translation, right? To spur one another. If you have an ESV, maybe, I think it says stir up one another. Do you realize that the reason why you come to church is you're here to stir up people? We often come to church for personal reasons. It's all about what we get out of it. What's it say? So notice, let us consider how to stimulate, how to stir up, how to provoke, how to get everybody going. We're here to stir up each other. We're here to get one another going. And look what it says, not for any reason, or not for any, any, any nebulous reason, but for specific reasons. One another to love... And good deeds. You're here to stir up me, and I'm here to stir up you about love and good deeds. Which you can't do in the woods or the golf course. Which you can't do in the woods or in the golf course. Which you can't do in your bedroom, worshiping in your own way, because you have Netflix perpetually playing in the background of your consciousness. It just doesn't work that way. Look at verse 25. Not forsaking our own assembling together. As is the habit of some. See, church attendance was a problem for the author of Hebrews, just like it is today. What's interesting is not forsaking our own assembling together. That's actually a military term. And what it would mean today in today's language is AWOL. That's what it means. Christians not going AWOL as some are in the habit of doing. Look what it says. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As you know that the end is approaching and Jesus is returning, be about encouragement, be about stimulating, provoking, stirring one another up. Rhonda, what was your word again in that? Spurring one another on. Go for it, man. Be loving there. Do good deeds. Encouraging, building one another up. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews has got the theme of encouraging one another and being encouragement, being an encouragement thread all throughout every one of its of its chapters and the whole basis of encouragement is based on what Jesus has already done and what he will return to do it's always in those bookends so it's very awesome 
So notice, even the whole idea of being together in a place. Now notice it doesn't say that you have to be at 2939 County Road CX in Portage, Wisconsin. That's not the idea that it brings across here. But the idea is the notion of assembling together before the Lord. It's a very wonderful thing. Now, is the Lord still with you if you're by yourself? Absolutely, He is. But we also know that the way that we know that we love the Father is that we have fellowship with one another. That's a beautiful uh, uh, thing that is to be displayed as part of what the church is, who the church is, how we operate with one another. If you need encouragement, the place to find it is amongst your brothers and sisters. That is where that's supposed to come from. So notice, don't we were not even the church in the church age is told, don't forsake this assembling of one another. Now let's turn back to Deuteronomy. Could you touch on twenty six real quick? Yeah. It's one of the warning passages, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, 10.26 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins let's go on to 27 but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries Wow, what do you do with that? Exactly So what is the context that we're dealing with here? Jesus has provided everything and given you full confidence to come into his presence, yes? Yes, it's all, it's all paid for by him. It's all set up, ready to go. He invites us, he encourages us by the sheer shedding of his blood to be participating with one another. The reason why we come together is for mutual encouragement, love, and good deeds, yes? It's a good thing. We're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves as some are in the habit of doing. Use the context and walk it forward. Verse 26, 4, here's an explanation of the situation. If we go on sinning willfully, now stop. If we go on sinning willfully, this is really important in Bible study. Remember, no word is wasted in Bible study. If we go, for if we go on sinning willfully, look at that real quick and tell me some things that you observe about that text. Willfully. Notice it's willful sin. Now it's it's got a so if it's willful sin it's got a condition because it's something that you chose to do. Everybody see that? That's important. Now here's the interesting thing about that. And surely this doesn't happen in this room. Maybe in Chuck's class, but not ours. No one in here willfully sins, do they? Do we? Do we? Yeah, premeditated sin. We actually have conditional parameters on civil laws. There's a big difference between murder and premeditated murder, is there not? Yes. Yeah, there is. In fact, premeditated murder carries a greater sentence with it because you had time to think it over before you did it. I know it's wrong, but I'm doing it anyway. Well, that sounds like you're going to, you know, manifest or sorry, muster up a way to go and steal toys from a relative if you're a child. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So notice, it's willful sin. What else do you see? Yes. Uh we start out with 26, it says, for if we go on. Okay. Now, it's assuming, based on the previous verses, Yes. he's talking to Christians. Yes, for is a causal conjunction. And so what for means there is the idea of, now that I've made this statement, I am going to elaborate upon this statement and fill in some details to help propel us forward. That's the idea. So yes, that's true. We're still in the context of Christians. There's nothing that's given us the idea of it being unbelievers, but there's something else that gives way to that as well. Amy? Well, it keeps happening. We go on, so we're doing it. Okay. So notice it's habitual. 
It's something that's habitual taking root in our lives. He also says we, so he's including himself. Ah, anytime that you're ever studying a passage, and there's so many people, well, this is obviously talking to unbelievers. <laughs> Tell that person in your commentary that you're reading to hold the phone and go through and mark the personal pronouns. In fact, because Hebrews is such a debated book, Something that I've done from chapter 1 to the end. See these little green marks in here? My little green marks are marking all the personal pronouns or evidences that the writer gives for himself that the people that he's addressing are believers. Let me give you uh, an example. Uh, Down in verse 32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened. Everybody see that? He's talking to a group that is on the other side of being enlightened. So I marked that in green. Why is that? Because that tells me they're still talking to saved people. Brethren, verse 19, therefore, brethren, saved people. Notice verse 23, let us, verse 24, and let us, verse 25, not forsaking our own assembling together. Verse 26, for if we go on sinning willfully. Notice that the author of Hebrews, and we don't know who that is, notice the author of Hebrews is not exempting himself from this situation. He is talking to people that have the same standing, who are in the same realm of acceptance as he is. Interesting. Notice also the big word, if. If. And here's the reason why if is so important to mark in your Bible. Is because that tells you there's always a contingency in play. Which means, if you do this, which means you don't have to do this. You don't have to go on sinning willfully. You're choosing to do this. Now here's the crazy thing about that. For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. What is that? The gospel. Probably the same as having been enlightened, right? Down in verse 32. It's the same idea. Post-justification. If we wanted to get a little bit more technical with this, we say, well, baby Christians really don't know much. So after they've grown for a little bit, do you think the audience of Hebrews had grown some? In fact, they had. They'd been taught some incredible, profound things. But what we find is the author's frustration in chapter 5 is that he said, you guys have become so slothful that we need to go back and teach you the basics. You need to go through Christianity 101 again because you're not utilizing what you know. Doctrine is to give way to action. Not to verify somebody's salvation, but because it is progression in discipleship. That's why discipleship just isn't telling people what they need to know. It's leading them on a path of doing, implementing, sending them out as part of God's mission and what he's doing. So note, go ahead. We have to go, but can you hold that thought that there are no more sacrifice for sin? Mm -hmm. sin? What other sacrifice do you need besides Jesus? But if we willingly sin, there is no sacrifice. Right. Willingly do it. Right, which is what he's saying here is it's absurd for you to go on willingly sin, to willingly sin, because there's no other sacrifice that you need for your sin besides Jesus. Oh, okay. See that? I see. What sin are you going to commit that's apart from Jesus paying for it? There's not one. And so what he's saying is, is, since Jesus has already paid for all your sins, why would you want to go unwillingly sacrifice? Notice what he says after that. If that's the case, then what can you expect? Now, let's not discount this. I think sometimes Christians believe that we're in such a safe zone that our sin has become okay with God if we're, we have ongoing sin in our lives. God is never okay with sin. The way we know he's never okay is because his son died for sin. We, we cannot get past the gospel and how weighty and heavy that is, how important that is. Well, look what he says after that. But a terrifying expectation of judgment. 
Does that mean hell? Does that mean Christians are now going to go to hell because of this? You might get a whooping. You might get disciplined in the here and now. Not if you're a believer. You sure? God doesn't discipline his children? He does, but you aren't going to hell for it. You're not going to hell for it. You can't go to hell for it because all the work to secure your salvation was done by Jesus. His promise is if you believe in me, you have eternal life. So if you went to hell for willful sin, he would violate his promise. See, when we're faced with the things, we're like, wait a second, I don't totally understand that. Number one, we need to slow down. Number two, we need to fall back on the things that are strongholds throughout Scripture that we know are true. Jesus died for our sins. There's nothing we can do to merit our salvation. When he died, he died perfectly for all of them, and we are forever secure by his promise, not my performance. If my security is based on my performance, I was lost just as soon as I got saved. I guarantee you that. So notice what he says. But absolutely, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire. Oh, fire! It's got to be hell! Fire, fire, fire! (laughs) No. 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. Each one's work will be manifested because fire will show it to be true. Did you build the walls of your house on the foundation of Jesus Christ, the walls of your house being your Christian life, with wood, hay, straw, or gold, silver, precious stones? Christians who are in willing sin will have to give an answer for why they chose to persist in sin at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, at the judgment seat of Christ, does that mean that they lose salvation? No, that's not what it means. But they will suffer loss of reward. There will be verbal displeasure from Jesus. Not every Christian here is well done, good and faithful servant. Not every Christian gets the opportunity to rule and reign in the coming kingdom. Those are privileges for the faithful. Those who have clothed themselves in their righteousnesses is how it's described in Revelation 19. White robes, which are the righteousnesses. It's actually the plural of righteousness. It is the work that we did, the obedience, the faithfulness that we did. Now, immediately, here's what this does, is this creates anxiety in a Christian. Oh my gosh, is that going to be me? The sheer fact that you're concerned about whether or not that would be you tells me that it's not. I think that's important for you to grasp. We get all mentally and heart-wise out of whack about something like this. How many of us know Christians who have walked away from the faith? Those are the people that are in danger of this. The people who deny the master who bought them. False teachers. This speaks of, I think, in, in is it Second Peter 3 or 1 Peter 4? I can't remember. It's that type of person. It's the person who you know has a relationship with Jesus Christ, came to faith at them at some point, But they've chosen to live their lives apart from coming to the church, apart from being in the word, apart from obeying him, holding up his commandments because they love him. It's people who have put themselves in a wasteland because they love the world rather than the Lord. And here's the thing. You talk to those people, they don't care what they're going to get or not get at the judgment seat of Christ because they've so calloused themselves in their fellowship experience with him that they've discounted their relationship with him. We're not talking about the Christian that stumbles and falls. We're not talking about the Christian that got mad all of a sudden and lost their mind and spoke a couple of choice French words out loud. That's not what we're saying. The sheer fact that we would have regard for that, the sheer fact that we would employ 1 John 1, 9 because we know we need to come to him in confession, tells me that that's not you. 
You see what I'm saying? We're talking about people that have walked away from the faith. We're talking about people that even though God entrusted them with something to do with their lives, they sat on it and remained stagnant. Now, in all our gloriousness, we're already out of time. <laughs> Not having really stretched any more in Deuteronomy 12. But here's the thing. That's, that's the whole reason why I suggested to Pete, you should do a class on eternal rewards. It relates to prophecy, but it's so important to understand how we live our lives. Because the Father wants to bless us with riches. The, the Lord wants to repay us for good works that we have done. He's a gracious and giving and loving and merciful God. He wants more and more and more for us. I think it's really important for us to realize we can't sit here and just discount that at all. In fact, let me see if I can do it real quick. I don't know if I can. Because it is such an important subject. Ah, yes. Matthew Matthew 19. Let's go there real quick. Can I have two minutes of everybody's time, please? Mm-hmm. On top of the five minutes we've already taken past time. <laughs> <laughs> but let's be honest. Don't you love just knowing more about God's Word? Yes. Good grief. Mm-hmm. It's so good. Time constraints are silly. <laughs> now, here's the thing. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. For Matthew 19, and if you remember from Foundational Framework, we covered this because it's such a controversial passage. I think we did the parallel out of Luke. Uh, But Matthew 19, verses 16 through 26, is, is where Jesus has the encounter with the rich young ruler. Okay? I'm going to ask you to maybe meditate on that throughout this week. Go over it and over it and over it. If you've been in through the hermeneutics class so far, Employ the principles that you've learned from hermeneutics. Who's speaking? Who are they speaking to? What is the context? What book am I looking in? All of those things to try to come to a a good observance. And if you say, yeah, I've already read through that. I know it. I know it. And you feel like it's gotten stale with you. Either pick up a different translation or push yourself to read it over and over again and ask for the Holy Spirit to give you illumination. But here's what I want you to see is at the end, uh, verse 24. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now watch this, because the disciples felt that if you were rich, obviously God had blessed you, and therefore you were automatically in heaven because your riches were an evidence of your amazing perpetual blessing. Look at verse 25. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, Then who can be saved? Notice what their concern is. And looking at them, Jesus said to them, With people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Now watch this. The spokesman of the group steps up. Verse 27. Then Peter, we love Peter, said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said, Peter, you are so selfish. To think about what you're going to get out of your commitment to come with me in my evangelism ministry throughout Israel. Is that what he says? No. no. Get this. The Lord does not rebuke Peter for asking. What is in store for us because we have sacrificed to serve you? Everybody see this? Get this, guys. It's a huge, huge point. Because everybody says, oh, you shouldn't be worried about rewards. You shouldn't be worried about that whole thing. You should just serve Jesus because you love him. I hope you loving him is the greatest motivator for serving him. But 
Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter for this, and neither should we think there's a rebuke in thinking this. It's not selfish thinking. God tells us, go after rewards. Look what he says. Verse 28, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne. So notice, he tells you when that time is. When the kingdom comes is the idea. You also shall sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. That's their reward. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. That's not gain eternal life. Eternal life is a free gift that you're given. But anytime that the context points to an inheritance, eternal life to be had, it's talking of a reward to be earned, an increased quality of life in the kingdom is the idea. In fact, uh, Pete fills out his little marker board out there for his class on rewards. And under salvation being a free gift, he actually wrote down in parenthesis, you know, it's a free gift. It's, it's grace. It's an inheritance. I actually went in and erased the inheritance part. And I gave his little parenthesis a close. Because the idea is, as context tells us, inheriting eternal, eternal life is something to be had for those who are faithful and for those who sacrifice for the Lord. Who do away with the pleasures of the world they could have reveled in and lived in. And instead they live for the Lord. They made a choice based off of what God said in his word. I tell you what, God looks favorably on that. And Jesus champions us. Go forward with it. Do this. Live for me. Sound good? Very important. Food for thought. Very important. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time in the word. Uh, and I pray, God, we make progress in Deuteronomy next week. Uh, but we love you so much. And thank you, God, that your promises towards us in Jesus are yes and amen every time. It's in his name. Amen. amen.